Spurgeon is something of a marvel, is he not? The way he handles scripture shows a spirit-wrought understanding and insight into the Word of God, and he has a particular capacity for seeing something of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. He has a heart that is trained by grace, eyes that have been opened by the Holy Spirit, and there's an instinct in him to see things in Christ and of Christ that perhaps others of us would pass by. And that's the case in today's sermon. We're on 555 for our featured sermon this week. The title is Nothing But Leaves, the text from Mark 11 verse 13 concerning the fig tree to which Christ came for fruit but found nothing but leaves. The sermon itself was preached on the 21st of February 1864 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. For the week as a whole, we're reading from Sermon 549 through to 555, this featured sermon, and we hope that you'll continue to uh, listen in. If you'd like to follow along with daily quotes, you can find them uh, on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up for a weekly newsletter with the featured sermon and the outline for the week's reading at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, and you'll find a link there to this podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. As I've said, this week it's this sermon on nothing but leaves, and he wants us to, to see, and this is going to be a striking emphasis throughout this sermon, not just the justice of Christ Jesus, but also the mercy of Christ, even in justice. That there's a, there is a, what he describes as a solitary instance of stern judgment wrought by the Saviour's hand. That this is a, an outlying instance in the, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants us to consider then that if only once in his whole life Christ worked a miracle of pure judgment, the lesson so unique must be very full of meaning. If Christ's whole life were mercy, and if justice, as it were, uh, overcomes that mercy on only just this one occasion, then we need to see how mercy and justice are at work in this particular case. And so he says that the curse you at once perceive falls in its metaphorical and spiritual meaning upon high professors, that is, people who make a great claim to Christianity, but who are destitute of true holiness, upon those who manifest a great show of leaves, but who bring forth no fruit unto God, only one thunderbolt, and that for boasting pretenders, only one curse, and that for hypocrites. O oh, blessed Spirit! Write this heart-searching truth upon our hearts. And so it is that Spurgeon, even in preaching of judgment, is marvelling at mercy. As the Saviour comes, and in this particular case, he calls down a judgment from heaven upon a tree that gave every appearance of being ready to offer fruit, but actually had none. This is the, the thrust, then, of his sermon. He has... Uh, no skeleton at the front end, as he sometimes does. I have wondered in the past, and I suggest to you again, that part of this may be so that the sermon more naturally builds force over the course of its, uh, of its being delivered. 
and so he launches in by the remark that there were many trees with leaves only upon them, and yet none of these were cursed by the Saviour, save only this fig tree. His point is that there is mercy in this, because there were other trees that only had leaves, and yet only this fig tree was cursed by the Lord Christ. And so, he says, there are many men whose lives bear leaves, but no fruit, and yet, thanks be unto God, almighty patience bears with them. And there again is that gospel genius. There's that marvel at the mercy, the grace, and the patience of God. Bear in mind, he's talking about judgment. And what Spurgeon marvels at most with regard to judgment is how patient God is and remains. And so there are those who are allowed to live out their time, and it is true that they're cut down and cast into the fire, but while permitted to stand, no curse withers them. The long suffering of God waits to be gracious to them. This then is a marvel of mercy, that there are thousands who ignorantly follow the sign and know nothing of substance. That is, they have a name to live but are dead. Their religion is a mere show a signboard without an inn, a well-set table without meat, a pretty pageant where nothing is gold but everything gilt, nothing real but all pasteboard, paint, plaster and pretense. Nonconformists, your chapels swarm with such, says Spurgeon, and the houses of the establishment, that is the National Church, are full of the same. Multitudes live and die satisfied with the outward trappings of religion and are utter strangers to internal vital godliness, and yet not cursed in this life. Truly to be pitied, to be prayed for, sought after, but to be hoped for, because even though they have leaves and no fruit, nevertheless they are spared. And then he says there are others, many others, who have opinion but not faith, creed but not credence. They are very zealous for their Protestantism. They would not only die for orthodoxy but kill others as well. He talks about what we today speak of as the uh, the cage stage Calvinist. Some take the Calvinistic doctrine and then the five points are as dear to them as their five senses. They contend not so much earnestly as savagely for the faith. And though they, uh, they have this orthodox profession yet there's an ugliness in their spirit. They're convinced, but they're not in any way compassionate or caring. They have a creed, but they have no faith of their own. They are on an orthodox road to hell, and the devil knows how to handle Calvinists quite as well as Arminians. So it's not your orthodoxy of creed that will save you. It is not your correctness of doctrine, and you can be absolutely correct in your doctrine as the devil himself is, and yet have no real life in Christ Jesus. There is no pale of any church then, no shade, no uh, boundary that can ensure salvation, no form of doctrine that can guarantee to us eternal life. Rather, you must be born again. That is, you must bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And then he says there are those who have talk without feeling. And he refers to a character in Pilgrim's Progress, the Mr. Talkative, who loves to chat about things, even holy things, but there's no real substance. 
And so, he says, let the preacher himself feel the anxiety of the Apostle Paul, lest, after having preached to others, he himself should be a castaway. And let my hearers feel the same concern, lest, after talking about the things of God, they should prove to be mere lip servers and not accepted children of the Most High. We might say, let every uh, podcaster or videographer, every documentary maker, every author, let us all consider those of us who, who put our lips or our fingers to the work of the kingdom. Let us ask whether or not we are mere talkers or whether or not we have real feeling, real relation to Christ. And then he says there are others who, again, these, these leaf, leafy trees but no fruit. They have regrets without repentance. They're often provoked by a sermon to feel some measure of grief, but they never actually leave their sins behind. It's easy, he says, to bring a man to the river of regret, but you cannot make him drink the water of repentance. And then beyond that, there are those who have resolves without action. They're always promising, but all they're willing is in the future tense. Hearers, yes, feelers even, but not doers of the word. They want to be free, but they have no uh, patience, no readiness, no grace uh, to be set free. They see the right, but they permit the wrong to rule them. They're ready to fight for God, but victory is barely won, and they turn back as soon as they have set out. They don't follow through on their commitments and expectations. The great majority of persons who have any sort of religion at all, says the preacher, bear leaves, but they produce no fruit. It is a truly terrifying prospect to be thoroughly religious and yet to be without any of the fruit of life in Christ Jesus. There's nothing to be done with trees which bring forth only leaves, says Spurgeon, but in due time to put use the axe upon them and to cast them into the fire, and this must be your doom so long as you will not come to Christ. And there you see again, there's the patience, there's the mercy, that mercy waters you with her tears even now. God's loving kindness digs about you still. And you see here then how Spurgeon has really caught the mood of Christ. And he understands the, the tone and the tenor of the, the gospel age. That here, here is a Christ who only with the deepest grief and regret calls forth judgment. Here is a Christ who in patience and in mercy bears still with the unrepentant and Spurgeon is calling them to come to him. But there's a second marvel of mercy in this occasion of justice, that there were other trees that had neither leaves nor fruit and none of these were cursed. So Spurgeon's saying, yep, yeah, we're looking at the curse on the, the leafy but fruitless tree, but look at all the other trees, those with leaves without fruit, who were also at that time spared, and the trees that had neither leaves nor fruit and were not at that time cursed. And so he says that there are multitudes who are destitute of anything like religion. If the, the leafiness is the metaphor for a religious profession, then there are trees that have no such leaves. They not only have no fruits of godliness, but they've no leaves even of outward respect to it. They do not come to the court of the Lord's house. No form of prayer drops from their lips. They never attend upon preaching or the other ordinances of the gospel. And that's true of multitudes. 
You and I, I don't doubt, we can walk down the streets in which we live and unless we are unusually blessed from house to house, sometimes for minutes or hours at a time, there'll barely be a single person, if we can find one, who has any real thought of God. It is a very sad thing, says our preacher, to think that there are people living in total darkness next door to light that you may find in the very street where the gospel is preached persons who have never heard a sermon. And such people, he says, can be divided essentially into two classes and upon neither of them does the withering curse fall in this life. There are some upon whom we look with hope. Although we see now neither leaves nor fruit, we know that the time of figs is not yet. And that's the the hope that he brings in, that there are some who are now in this condition who are yet God's elect, just not yet called. Their names are in the Lamb's book of life and were there from before the foundations of the world. The Lord has many people in this city should be the encouragement, he says, of every one of you to try to do good that God has among the vilest of the vile, the most reprobate, the most debauched and drunken, an elect people who must be saved. So next time, brother or sister, you walk out of your church building, next time you walk out of your home, next time you look up and down the street where God has put you, whether it's in the church building or the place where you live, remember that there may be, and we pray that there will prove to be, men, women, boys and girls within even hailing distance of you who may yet be brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And that should be your encouragement, that you don't look at these people and say they're beyond any help and any hope, but rather you look at them and you say, who knows who God may be working in? Who knows how many of these shall yet bow the knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and put their faith in him? Though the time of figs is not yet, then perhaps in due course they will, they must become the willing servants of the living God. This then is our confidence. Eternal love prevents the curse. Yes, the the sin of the sinner deserves it, but the finished sacrifice blots out the record of transgression. They may well perish because they seek not mercy, but Christ intercedes for them and live they shall. But there's another tragic element. Among those who have neither leaves nor fruit, there are those who never bring forth the one or the other, who live and die in ignorance, perishing without hope. And, says Spurgeon, they should have no reason to blame us for their condemnation. They could accuse us if we didn't take to them the gospel, and that's a dreadful thought, and it's our responsibility to to bring the word of God then to bear upon every creature. And that's how Spurgeon comes to his third point. He's talked about the leafy and fruitless trees. He's talked about the leafless and fruitless trees. And now he says, in the fig tree, there's a special case. For here the fruit takes the precedence of the leaves, or the leaves and the fruit come at the same time, so that it can be laid down as a general rule that if there are leaves on a fig tree, you may rightly expect to find fruit upon it. And so he's now going to dig into this particular situation. To begin then with the explanation of this special case, in a fig tree, fruit comes before leaves. And he says in a Christian, fruit always comes before profession. 
Find a man anywhere who's a true servant of God, and before he united himself with the church or attempted to engage in public prayer or to identify himself with the people of God, he searched to see whether he had real repentance on account of sin. He desired to know whether he had a sincere and genuine faith in the Lord Christ, and he perhaps tarried some little time to try himself to see whether there were the fruits of holiness in his daily life. And that's the way that it goes with Christians. They first give themselves to the Lord and afterwards to the Lord's people according to the Lord's will. Would you not think it disgraceful to profess what you haven't felt? asks Spurgeon. Don't you feel a holy jealousy when you're teaching others lest you should teach more than God has taught you? He says your your profession has to follow upon your fruit. You'd be terrified of having leaves before you have the fruit. And then, when we see the leaves, we have a right to expect the fruit, if that's the case in such a tree. When I see a man, a church member, when I hear him engage in prayer, I expect to see in him holiness, the character and the image of Christ. More, says Spurgeon, I have a right to expect it, because the man has solemnly avowed that he's a partaker of divine grace. To join a church, then, is to take upon yourselves very solemn responsibilities. What are you saying when you tell people, I'm a Christian and I want to be part of this congregation? You are declaring that you've passed from death to life, that you've been born again, that there's been a change in you the like of which you never knew before and one which God alone could have brought about. You are telling us you're in a habit of private prayer. You are declaring that you have a desire for the conversion of others. And if you didn't make that profession, we would never dare to receive you. And it would then be an insincere on our part if, with you having spoken in that way and made such a declaration, we then didn't expect to see that fruit in your life. We have every right to expect a changed life when there is a profession of faith. And yet he talks about those who have no love for souls, no care for the spread of the Redeemer's kingdom, and yet think the Spirit has made you what you are. There's no zeal. There's no melting bowels of compassion, the the language of heartfelt compassion, no cries of earnest entreaty, no wrestling with God, no holiness, no self-denial. And yet you say that you're a vessel made by the Master and fitted for his use? How can this be? asks Spurgeon. No, if you profess to be a Christian from the necessity of the Spirit's work, we have a right to expect fruit from you. And he says, furthermore, that our Lord hungers for fruit. Why have we been called but that we should be called to be saints? To what end, with what purpose, are any of the great operations of the covenant of grace? Don't they all point at our holiness? If you think of any privilege which the Lord confers upon his people through Christ, what is the point of it? They all aim at the sanctification of the chosen people, bringing forth fruit that God the Father may be glorified in them. For this then, O Christian, the tears of the Saviour, for this the agony and the bloody sweat, for this the five death wounds, for this the burial and the resurrection, that our Christ makes you holy, even perfectly holy, like unto himself. And that, says Spurgeon, stirs up the soul of every believer, that Jesus hungers after fruit in me. That stirs us up to do more for him. 
He hungers for our good works. He desires to see us useful. The King of Kings hungers after your prayers, your anxieties for the souls of others. And so this brings us into the very midst and meaning of the miracle, that there are some who make just such a profession and yet disappoint the Saviour in his just, that is, his righteous, legitimate expectations. So, here's the fig tree. It has all the indications that there should be fruit. It already has its leaves. And in the fig tree, the leaf follows after the fruit, or at least comes with it. And so, you would expect in any true Christian or in any true believer for there to be true life before there's a profession of faith. Where you have the profession of faith, you have every right to expect the fruit, and that fruit is our Lord's own desire and expectation. And yet there are many who, speaking in this way, disappoint the Lord Jesus. The Jews did this. When he came, there was no fruit. The other nations were without leaves, but the Jews had the leaves of profession. They professed to have obtained the blessings which he came to bring, and yet there was no fruit. And Spurgeon now moves from that experience to the gospel age. The same, he says, will be true of any church. And so he's, he's attached it in its context. He knows how it applies in the time when Christ spoke that parable or acted that parable uh, at the time uh, when he was in Jerusalem. And now he's saying there are other such situations among us. The same then will be true of any churches. When all the churches seem sunken in lethargy, such a time, says Spurgeon, we had ten years ago, but one church perhaps seems to be all alive. The congregations are large. Much is proposed for the growth of the Saviour's kingdom. A great deal of noise is made about it. There's much talk. There's a lot of expectation. And if there's no fruit... There's no real consecration to Christ. If no genuine liberality, no earnest vital godliness, no hallowed consistency, other churches may live on. But such a church as this, making so high a profession and being so precocious in the production of leaves, shall have a curse from God. That's a fearful thought, isn't it? That a a church newsletter or something like, or a, a church Twitter feed or a church Facebook page, We can be all so full of what we're about and what we're doing and how much work, but where is the fruit in our lives, let alone in the work of taking out the gospel? And, says Spurgeon, what's true in a church, corporately, collectively, can also be true in the case of individuals. So, for young believers who early join the church, he says it's not a very ordinary case to see children converted, but we do see some, and we're grateful but we're jealous that we should see leaves but without fruit, lest we should see leaves without fruit. Uh, we, we, we're looking for higher results because of their extraordinary cases. We want to see the evidence in the life of what they're saying with their lips. Again, professors, that is, uh, Christians, uh, professing Christians who are eminent in station, There are necessarily only a few ministers, only a few church officers. But when men distinguish themselves by such zeal or by louder professions than others, so as to gain the ear of the Christian public and be placed in responsible positions, if they bring forth no fruit, 
They are the persons upon whom the curse will light. They've got this big testimony. But where is the holiness? Where is the fruitfulness? Or to those who make professions of much love to Jesus Christ. With the most Christians, I am afraid, says Spurgeon, I must say that the time of figs is not yet. We're lukewarm. There's a there's a great noise about how much we love Christ, and yet there's no real fruitfulness. Yes, says one, I love God so much that I do not reckon that anything I have is my own. It's all the Lord's, all the Lord's, and I'm his steward. Well, this, this good man, says Spurgeon, of course, he joined the church and after a time some mission work wanted a little help. And his reply? Well, when I, I pay my seat rent, uh, that's the Victorian custom or the, the English custom at that time and beforehand, when I, we, we might say when, I, when I've paid my tithe, when I've done my bit, I've done all that I intend to do. A man of wealth and means no less. But after a little time, he found it inconvenient even to pay for his seat and goes now to a place not quite so full, where he can both get his seat and do nothing to support the ministry. So there'll be many who'll say, well, I'm, I'm a wonderful Christian, I, I love the Lord Jesus Christ, but ask them to do anything, to invest anything, to make any particular effort, and there's always a reason why not. Others profess not so much love as experience. Oh, they've had the deepest experience. They're the men who know the humblings of heart and the plague of human nature. And yet, in their daily life, they're as corrupt as anybody else. They're a plague to their own household. Then there are those with a censorious tongue. What good people they must be, says Spurgeon, who can see the faults of other people so plainly. The church is not right, and the other is not right. And, and that preacher over there? Well, some people think him a very good man, but they do not. They can see the deficiencies in the various denominations. They observe that very few really carry out scripture as it should be carried out. They complain of want of love. They're the ones who say, well, this church isn't very loving. And yet they're the very people who create that want. Spurgeon says very often, the people who point the fingers at others, they're indulging in the very faults that they identify in them. You get a lot of people today, it's tragic, who, who think they're the only people who see clearly, the only people who've got any real courage, the only people who, who understand the, the truth of God, and they're very, very quick to damn everybody else. Some are sweating on their brow, winter freezing in their hearts, like a painted Jezebel, which made her all the uglier. They seem to be what they are not candles with big wicks and no tallow, and when they go out they make a foul and nauseous smell. Spurgeon says, watch out for being the man with, with all the leafy, the leafy appearance of, of someone who knows everything that's wrong with everyone and everything else, and yet no fruit of true godliness. And so he says in conclusion, well, much, well might such a tree be withered because God abhors such deception. We may go on with all the externals of religion. Nobody may miss us out of our seat at church. Yes, we may never miss our Christian engagements. We may be in all external matters more precise than we used to be. And yet for all that, we may have become in our hearts a den of thieves. The heart may be given to the world, he warns, while external ceremonies are still kept up and maintained. And what's abhorred by God is also 
ugly and, and despised of men. Why do people go to a particular place to see holiness and virtue in the church? Why did they tread its hallowed courts to get nearer to God? Why did they go up to the temple in Jerusalem? What did they find instead of godliness and God himself? Instead of holiness, covetousness. Instead of nearness to God, they get into the midst of the market where men are haggling about the price of the sacrifices. And so some may be watching to see whether or not there's any real religion. And if they see leaves without fruit, then we deceive and disappoint a needy mankind. More than this, the barren fig tree committed sacrilege upon Christ. Somebody might have said when Christ went to get the fruit from the leafy tree, how do you go to a tree, O prophet, on which there's no fruit? And so it is that a false professor, a mere hypocrite, exposes Christ to ridicule. The temple of old dishonoured God. The leafy fig tree without fruit dishonoured God. So does a Christian when his heart is not right. And once more, says Spurgeon, this tree might well be cursed because its bringing forth nothing but leaves was a plain evidence of its sterility. It had force and vitality, but all turned to ill account, and it would continue to do so. Christ's curse simply confirmed it in its unfruitfulness. He as much as said, He that is unfruitful, let him be unfruitful still. Christ didn't make the tree unfruitful. He simply declared that it would go on being what it already was. That's a fearful judgment upon those who have that great leafy profession with regard to their outward lives and yet no real fruitfulness, no real life in their hearts, in their souls. Well, says Spurgeon, I could almost wish myself back out of the church or in an obscure place in her ranks to escape the perils and responsibilities of my position, and so might you if you have not the witness of the Spirit. Tremble, he says, tremble before the heart-searching eyes of God and remember that grace can make us fruitful yet, that the way of mercy is open still. And so here you have this, this excellent man of God. And what's he doing? He's making clear that there is justice, but there is also abundant mercy. He's using this to warn us, not to be satisfied with or to merely uh, make an outward show of external religion, but rather to ensure that while mercy is yet held out, that we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust that uh, this searching sermon, and again it is genuinely representative of Spurgeon, he, he's as much about uh, clearing away falsehood as he is about making known truth in some of these sermons. I hope it's been a blessing to you, even if potentially, initially, something painful. It's good for us to understand these things and to search our hearts accordingly. God willing, next week, sermons 556 to 562, and our featured sermon is 560. Christ is glorious. Let us make him known. Do join us again on that occasion. We trust that God will bless you until then. You have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or write a review on your favourite podcast app.